It's been a really strange offseason. Vis-a-vis dogs running onto the field. You made it. We're not sabermetricians. That's all behind us now. Yeah, I got in trouble, but it was worth it. It was totally worth it. It was worth it. Totally worth it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Flushing Transit Authority, a Mets podcast. I'm Jay Bushman, and joining me here at Flushing Transit headquarters, he's not concerned by an unexplained dip in velocity. It's Will Stegman. Hi, Jay. How are you? How am I? I am. Let me just say this. My heart is as calcified as Ioannis Cespedes's heels. Uh, you know what? If I, there's a thing where you, you hear a term for the first time, and I have to say, the term calcified heels yeah. goes through me like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, like you know, I've heard of a heel turn before, but yes. this is a little ridiculous. Yes, it's, it's just when you think that your Mets training staff can't do worse. And I'm not saying that they necessarily missed something here, but I hadn't heard of this issue yeah, until this week. Yeah. And the fact that that Yoana Cespedes just sort of off the cuff mentions it yesterday mm-hmm. um, doesn't make you feel great about the Mets process. <sighs> I don't know if you saw this morning as we were getting ready to record. Um, Mickey Calloway was doing his before the before the game press conference. And and uh, an aside here, how miserable do you think Mickey Calloway must be, and that he has to do a press? He has to talk to the press before the game and after the game, yeah. and gets asked the same awful questions, and he just doesn't have any answers. Apparently, Mickey said this morning he didn't know about. Cespedes saying he didn't hear what Cespedes said last night about the heel problem, about needing surgery, about okay. it potentially being an eight to ten month rehab. He had not heard that. Is are the Mets looking for a spot in the Trump White House? Because <laughs> it feels like minus, let's hope minus the rampant racism that they have the same sort of org structure. New York real estate billionaires, I tell you. You know what? I forgot all about where the Wilpons made their money. It's just, it's like the Mets won last night. And even in victory, we have Syndergaard randomly just like losing five miles an hour off of his fastball. When when they came out to talk to him in the middle of the game, I was like, my hands covering my face. I was like, I can't, I can't see this. And my favorite part of that whole thing was Mickey comes out, he's talking to, to center guard. Center guard's like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. They all leave. As Dribble Cabrera stays on the mound and he's like, really? 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 You okay? You okay? Like, you really? Can tell me. I'm you not going to tell, gonna, I'm not tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just between you and me. We're like on the, on the, the pitching mound at Yankee Stadium, 40,000 people around us, but come on, just, just whisper in my ear. Are you really okay? Um, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, I got a, I got a text from my buddy Carrie yesterday that says, "Hey, the Mets are really energized from the break." <laughs> and I was like, "You know what? They're a 15 game win streak away from getting right back into this." Pretty much. But Pretty I enjoyed much. the game up until you know the Yankees made it very close last night. Um, but even when things are going great, even when it was six to one yeah. after five, I'm like. 
Yeah, and that's just never make it easy for me to feel good about it. As we are recording this, uh, it is Saturday morning, uh, July 21st, and we are in right in the middle of Schrodinger's Familia, where he has been traded, he hasn't been traded, we don't really know. We're expecting the, it to be finalized at, at some point today, but, but there's been a lot of talk today um, about how, because of how this is all going down, so the Mets played the Yankees last night, and they have an afternoon game today. So it's a short turnaround. Familia is not available because they're about to trade him. In fact, I saw a, a tweet as I was coming over here this morning that his uniform isn't even in, out in the locker room. Like, he's not dressing. He may not even be there, but he's on the roster. Um, Lugo pitched. I, I don't know how many innings Lugo pitched Lugo last night. Innings, but he threw 60 pitches. He threw 60 pitches. Gazelman through two inning, two high leverage innings. Yep. Neither of them are available. The Mets are down three pitchers today. The Mets play in a few hours, and if unless they finalize this Familia trade or make another roster move to get another pitcher, they are down three players today. Actually, make it four players, because guess who's not in the lineup? Ioannis Cespedes, because his, his heels are sore or something sore. So, like, we've got a 20-man roster today. Let's just look. As long as we still have Matt Dendecker <laughs> taking at bats and Manning center field, yeah. what are you worried about? And not to, not to bag on Matt Dendecker. I, hey, at least he can play center field. It's not, it's not his fault. He's out there doing his best. Um, it's just, it's, it's, you know the phrase, you can't win for losing? Like, that's kind of what it feels. Even when they win, yeah. it's just, you know... Pies in the face, left and right. Yep. I, I wanted to be super excited. It was first game back from the mm-hmm. break. It's been a real, you know, grind, real grind of the first half. Um, I was reading, I, it may have been Tim Britton writing in The Athletic, just sort of giving the Mets a letter grade for the first half. And it's like, oh, that grade is an F. Yeah. Like, there are people who, who have scored very high, and there are people whose individual performances have been great. But as a team, the Mets... Failed yeah. in the first half, yeah. and there's no, there's no getting around that. And they failed not just on the field; they failed as an organization. Yeah. I don't understand the Mets roster management. I still don't understand the Mets evaluation process, not only for players but for players' injuries. It's become clear, and you know, this is not the first time we've talked about this, but you know, the fish rots from the head, mm-hmm. and. We either have to choose another team to root for <laughs> or wait for the Wilpons to sell because we're never going to be happy. I don't know if you uh, you saw the uh, article this uh, this week. I believe it was uh, it was on Mets, Metsmerized Online, mm, the yeah. interview with Nick Francona. Yes. He fired Nick Francona, who had some very interesting things to say about, about uh, Mets culture. The most interesting thing I, I found from that that article was how he portrayed uh, the Wilpons as being totally reactive to the needs of Major League Baseball and the commissioner's office, right. which is an interesting take because we're used to thinking of, you know, the, the, the Wilpons as, you know, like, like the Dolans, like they're just idiots with too much money. But that's too easy a you know a, a, a way to just get rid of the problem. Like there, there are people in this system 
that are dealing with influences and and pressures that we maybe don't understand. And the one thing now, you know, who knows how accurately Nick Francona is describing this situation, but I was really interested in his description that um, he knew he was going to lose his job with the Mets when the Phillies hired Gabe Kapler. Right. And he described how there was going, there was pressure coming from the Dodgers and the Phillies and Major League Baseball for the Mets to fire Nick Francona, which yeah. speaks to a way that things work behind the scenes that I don't think we are aware of or right. even see, which is interesting. Yeah. Rem- refresh my memory. What was Nick Francona's role in the organization? He was um, assistant director for player development. Um, and the way he, but the way he described it is that he was very involved in some of the veterans outreach that the team was doing. Um, and that, uh, he apparently complained and I, I was trying to figure out the exact nature of the complaint. Um, and I couldn't, couldn't find the details on that, but that he was not happy with something about how they were like turning Memorial day into a sort of. PR events right. without action. without actually ta- letting some of the money that they raised go back to the veterans that they were they were using is what right. it sounded like. Right. And when you're saying veterans, obviously yes. you're referring to military veterans, yes. not veteran players. Yes. And one of the reasons that he apparently was fired from the Dodgers is that Nick Francona is a veteran and apparently um, went to some uh, support organization for veterans with PTSD and. Gabe Kapler in a when he was in a position of uh, in the office front office of the Dodgers apparently like that was a problem for him and mm. was accusing him of not being able to do his job or it's 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 I mean I don't know like we're just right it's we're, just hearsay from from our mouths I don't know but the way that Nick Francona portrayed it was he had issues some PTSD issues he went to get help and. He, you know, was vocal about having difficulties and apparently Gabe Kapler um, found that offensive or weak or concerning. Um, And, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about um, some things about the mid-90s Mets. And I think we can tie that back to an incident um, in the mid-90s, but we'll leave that we'll leave that for there. For where we are right now, I just think it's another interesting window on the organizational culture and how it just can't seem to get anything done. Yeah. It just seems that they're falling over themselves at every opportunity. And you, you want to look at it and say, how can they be so bad at this? Um, but it's interesting, like in reading that article and understanding like some of the behind the scenes politics that takes place mm-hmm. between major league baseball and the Mets. And I'm sure it happens with other teams as well. You sort of, I shouldn't say you, I have always saw the the teams of Major League Baseball as independent operators, and the commissioner serves those teams, and the league serves those teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems as if the current commissioner's office and the previous commissioner's mm-hmm. regime, you know, the, basically, if history serves me right... When Faye Vincent was um, muscled out, muscled out, and replaced by Bud Selig, who at that time was the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, it became clear that it was no longer 
you know, at that point, 28 individual clubs Mm -hmm. with a commissioner, it's essentially now a corporation. And the corporation now has 30 different divisions. Something that, um, a term that I wasn't really familiar with until recently, um, is, uh, it's, is regulatory capture. I don't know if you've, you've ever heard this phrase before, but it's the idea that the agency that is tasked with overseeing and regulating, um, a business is then taken over by people from that business. And we can see that all up and down the current um, uh, uh, government. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say that that just hasn't been happening for decades, right. depending no matter who is you know in charge uh, in office. And this seems to be the 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 seal this the bud sail the bud ceiling takeover seems to be uh, another instance of regulatory capture within baseball. Right, and essentially, it it feels to me. That much like the NFL, um, they have been building towards, look, we don't care who wins. Yeah. It's about maximizing earning mm-hmm. for each club. Yeah. And it's about keeping people competitive mm-hmm. and keeping fans coming to the games and keeping mm-hmm. the TV deals going. Yeah. Now, look, I'd be naive to say that there's any other motive for running a Major League Baseball team. Yeah. I want to believe it's about the games, but it's not. And, you know, we talk sometimes in a general sense about, like, who is who is this game for? Mm-hmm. Who does this game belong to? Yeah. And it's clear, and I don't mean to be cynical, but it's hard to not be cynical about things. It's hard to feel like this game is really for fans. And I don't just mean people like you and I who sit and talk into microphones about it. Mm-hmm. I mean fans in general. Yeah. It's just it's a money-making operation and if we attach some stories to it and some memories and want to make something of it, like that's our problem. <laughs> boy, I, I sound <laughs> really And boy, that is our problem right now. Ah, yeah. boy, don't mean yeah. to get dark. I I'm, I'm sorry listeners, I'm feeling very cynical about the nature of Everything. Large, everything and large organizations <laughs> yeah. and the Mets. Yeah. So speaking of, so Jerry's Familia, by the time we're done recording this, may no longer be a Met. It's clear um, that the Mets have hit the selling portion mm-hmm. of 2018. So let's talk for a brief moment about who else we think we may be saying goodbye to between now and the trade deadline, which is, as of today, about 10 days away. Well, I mean, the most obvious ones are Familia and Esdrubal Cabrera. Yes. You know, it's the it's, it's last year all over again, who mm-hmm. are expiring free agents. Are, I, are there other expiring free agents? I can't there, remember. I mean, those are the ones that have got, um, you know, Cabrera is the one mm-hmm. who's got some value. I yeah. can't, off the top of my head, think of everybody's contract status, but... You know, right now, Cabrera is the guy who, you know, if you're looking for a, a bat who can move to a contender, mm-hmm. who can, you know, who can play a couple of positions, who can, you know, obviously could DH on an American League team. 
Uh, oddly enough, the other the other name is uh, Jose Batista. Yeah. Whereas, like, we talked about that. Like, okay, like somebody could use him off the bench. Somebody could, you know, use him uh, as a DH in a in a stretch run. He's, you know, he's been great for us, but you know, like <laughs> we're not going anywhere. So yeah. it is clear that you know the Mets at this point are playing for 2019. Right. And, you know, what can they get as far as value for those parts they have? Hey, if, if you get a bag of balls for Jose Bautista, you need a bag of balls to play this game. Hey, right? you're not, what are you going to right. swing at nothing? I am, I am increasingly starting to feel like, however, that they're not going to do anything major. <clears throat> that well, they're not, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, like, not even the, the and, you know, <clears throat> DeGrom's agent picked a, a, a perfect moment to be like, hey, guys, what are you doing? Well, like, do something. Again, it may be Tim Britton again mm-hmm. um, writing in The Athletic. Like, hey, you got a lot better leverage when your ERA is one six eight yeah. than you do when it's three five three. But I don't think they're going to trade him or Syndergaard. And I don't even think they're probably going to trade Wheeler or Mats or any any of the pieces. It's it's really, I'm starting to get the sense that they're going to wait till the offseason. Right. They're going to hire a new GM. And if that GM wants to, you know, do an impression of the Marlins and trade everyone, they're not going to stand in the way. They're not going to do anything in the next couple of months to make that less uh, possible or more difficult. Right. Hold on to all the chips that that you can and trade them in the offseason. You know, have you noticed this dynamic? I have noticed this dynamic over the past couple of years. The trading deadline. Well, we've got someone we can trade, but... They should really hold on to them because they'll get more for them in the offseason. Offseason rolls around. Well, we can trade them, but they should really hold on to them for the trade deadline because you could get more for them then. You got to pick one. I don't think, you know, I'm I'm in agreement with you in that I feel like there are four starting pitchers, Syndergaard, DeGrom, Mats and Wheeler, um, and pray for rain. Hmm. Um, I think they're going to hold on to to all four of those. I don't think that they'll get value for DeGrom. Um, you know what? When you look at Noah Syndergaard, we don't even know who Noah Syndergaard is at this point. Um, Harry Rose on the radio broadcast made a great point last night that Noah Syndergaard's not just shaking off six or seven weeks of rust. Remember, he missed a good portion of last season. Yep. So over the last two seasons, he hasn't pitched a lot. And the Mets don't know what they have with Noah Syndergaard. Are you trading a player who's going to have flashes of brilliance, or are you trading the guy we thought we had back in yeah. 2016 when he started? You know the the one postseason game the Mets appeared in. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know who we have in Noah Syndergaard. Yeah, we know who we hope he is. Um, and as far as like Jacob Degrom, if the Mets were to trade Jacob Degrom. My opinion is that is the organization giving the finger to all of us who are saying, you know what, Jake's the only guy we're still showing up to watch at this point. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I am sort of, I maybe I'm mentally preparing myself for a full teardown. Like, they're never going to say we're going to do a full teardown, but, you know... They bring someone new in as a GM in the offseason. They're going to have their own plans. Um, we all know the real answer to this question, which is you've got four really, really you know high-ceiling starters. 
hold on to them and for the love of Pete, spend some damn money on people who can hit. Yes. Like we talked about this last time. This was the Giants formula of, you know, lock up the pitchers and then pay money to get the bats in when they're available. The problem with that is you have to pay the money. Yes. And the Mets have historically gone for the lower cost option and hope they can get enough productivity. Yeah. And this, again, like, Jay Bruce is a quality major league outfielder. Jay Bruce is not a guy who's going to carry your team. Todd Frazier, same guy. Yeah. Those are the pieces that the Mets have added. Yeah. You know, Yoannis Cespedes, when healthy, as we saw, can carry your team. Yeah. Um, Michael Conforto, who has forgotten how to hit and is painful to... Mm-hmm. Michael Conforto, now he doesn't look this way, but... He has sort of reached that Jason Bay stage Ooh. of, wow. I don't know what is wrong here. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mean to bring up an old joke I used to make, but Jason Bay at the plate in his tenure with the Mets, to me, looked like a horse trying to do math. Like, <laughs> he didn't understand what it was there for, and okay. he was really bad at it. I remember the, uh, the old joke around that time. Hey, who's up after Jason Bay? The you other team. So I feel, watching Michael Conforto right now, you know, and his approach doesn't look as bad. Jason Bay, to an outsider like mm-hmm. myself, looked lost at the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Conforto doesn't look that bad. He's just not getting any results. And I wonder how much of it is still, you know, shoulder, indus- sh- shoulder, indus- shoulder injury. He also looks like he's just not having any fun. And you know, also it may not. It's hard to look like you're having fun when you're standing next to Brandon Nimmo, just by comparison. Like everyone else, you know, looks looks like a downer. But uh, he just looks like he's pressing. Yeah, he has to be. Yeah, you know, he's here. He Conforto sees himself as Mm -hmm. the David Wright of this team. Hey, that's one thing we potentially have to look forward to is that there is a non-zero chance that David Wright actually plays a game this year, which, you know, I know we're grasping at straws here. There's a straw to grasp at. Why not? (laughs) I hope he does it. Um, You know, I have been on record as saying that the headline, David Wright is resuming baseball activities, is the saddest headline (laughs) because... David Wright, for all that he has meant to this organization um, and for what he has done on the field and off the field, he deserves the opportunity to work himself back into shape um, and Mm -hmm. play. But you can't help but feel that the organization has been a little handcuffed by their loyalty to David Wright. Now, again, he's under contract. Um, He has every right to, to do what he wants. And hey, it's not my money that the team are spending. But I had said before, like I would have felt a lot better had they arranged some sort of Bobby Bonilla type buyout right. and allowed the Mets to move on. Yeah. Because the chances of David Wright being a productive or even a um, replacement level major leaguer at this point, at his age, when you consider the injuries that he's overcome and the surgeries, it's it's slim to none. I think we may actually be on track for, at this point, what you would have to consider as the best case scenario, which is he works his way back to the team this year, maybe by late August, maybe early September, gets back, 
plays for a month, plays for six weeks, and then hangs them up. I mean, this really feels like the last hurrah no matter what. And he's still under contract for next year. I think so, yeah. Yeah. I think he's under contract through 2019. Look, at this point, I would love to see David Wright get a victory lap. Mm -hmm. I still get chills. Remember that first game back? Yeah. David Wright against the Phillies in 2015, and he just sent one into the upper deck at Citizens Bank Park. Yeah. That was one of your all-time, like, great Mets moments. Totally. And I just, I still think about that. And again, I want to I wanna see for his sake mm-hmm. and for the sake of fans who have, you know, I don't think there's a lot of fans who are banking on David Wright ever coming back. When I went to a game last year and they were had, they had commemorative um, soda cups, mm-hmm. that were David Wright and Jose Reyes cups, oh, I thought, well, these are just leftovers <laughs> from, from 2011 that have been right. sitting in storage all Pretty this much. time. Um, and let's not even talk about Jose Reyes. I honestly have not even paid any attention. There are other there are other things to worry about. So let's talk about a couple of things that actually have been positive. Have, not, there, have there been a couple of? Remind me. I, okay, I, here's a couple of positives. Yeah, and we'll take the Jacob Degrom out of it because okay. it doesn't matter. Yeah, two positives on this team. Um, Ahmed Rosario's approach of the plate. No, last night, notwithstanding, uh, had a bad game last night. But you know, everyone has a bad game. But look so at the look at the sort of long term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rosario's batting in the in the mid two forties. Mm-hmm. Um, he still strikes out too much. His on base percentage isn't, but he's getting better. He's, he's, he's it looks like he's taking a taking a step forward. Yes. Yeah. He's you know he's twenty one years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's a kid. He's this is his first full major league season. I am. Pleased with what yeah. he's doing. I wish that he didn't have uh, a little bit of the Daniel Murphy in him in the field. <laughs> the Daniel Murphy in him, where he's trying to make all of the plays at once <laughs> and ends yeah. up not doing anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're positive. And boy, who would think that when we were writing up this season, Devin Mezzarocco. I really enjoy watching Devin Devin Mezzarocco play. I really do. He is a ball player. He is. He yeah. is a ball player in that sort of sense that, like, we grew up watching, like, just the, like, yeah. uh, dirty uniform. Um, look, I don't know what kind of human being Devin Mezzarocco is. As my friend Anthony <laughs> has pointed out, Devin Mezzarocco has Al Capone's, <laughs> Al Capone's eyes, which is, which is a phrase that never fails to make me laugh. But I've enjoyed seeing him behind the plate. Um, who knows? Like, if anything, Devin Mezzarocco probably resurrected his career. Totally. Um, totally. By coming over to the Mets. So, hey, Matt Harvey gave us something this year after all. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know what? Let's not lose sight of the fact that if you've been following the reports out of Cincinnati, Matt Harvey's picked up some velocity. And I will say, good for Matt Harvey. There's nothing that would make me happier than seeing Matt Harvey turn it around and come out in 2019 and have a great season. For the Washington Nationals. Or the Philadelphia <laughs> Phillies. You never know. But I don't hey. think I'm emotionally prepared for another sustained run of Philadelphia Philly dominance. I just... Oh, you're never ready for the I, Phillies to uh, be good. God. The, the idea that they would have gotten Manny Machado like was 
Ugh, just too yeah. much. Worst case scenario is, all right, somehow Matt Harvey ends up on the Phillies next year, and they bring back Chase Utley on a one-year deal. <laughs> and then we have There's to... a positive. Chase Utley is retiring. That, no, you no, know. somehow they still bring him back. <laughs> no, no, like, Chase, we need you for one last job. Right. <laughs> Ruben Tejada's trying to make a comeback. <laughs> just when I thought I was out. So, yeah. We actually, since you mentioned him, um, since we last met, Manny Machado has become a Dodger. I have to say, it's really going to be weird, historically, when you find out that Manny Machado's last appearance in an Orioles uniform was during the All-Star Game. Yeah, that is a little odd. That has to feel weird. Because like you feel, as a fan, um, you want to have that goodbye moment. Yeah, yeah. And with Machado being traded to the, to the National League... He's also not going to come back to Dodgers to, you know, to... Camden Yards. Thank you. Yes. He's not going to end up back in Baltimore this season where he's going to get his, you know, his Mm much-deserved hand. Mm -hmm. So, look, the Dodgers have turned it around. And I will say that as as a hopelessly optimistic Mets fan, I'm like, all right, the Dodgers scuffled. The Dodgers then went, like, 36 and 15. So I'm like, if the Mets can run off 36-15 streak, they could be, at that point, maybe three games under 500. And, you know, I know we went through this last year with, you know, the question of, you know, can we, living in Los Angeles and the Dodgers being ticketed for, you know, going deep in the playoffs, can we morally support what is our hometown team and we just can't because of the presence of Mr. Utley, Chase. Yeah, and I may feel differently next year, um, but I will say that I've lived in L.A. now for nearly 20 years and I just never warmed to the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. I will admit that I warmed to the, like, early 2000s Angels Mm -hmm. because Vlad Guerrero and then Bartolo Colon were on the team. So it was very easy to root (laughs) for those two. Um, just thing to bring up. Vladimir Guerrero is going into the Hall of Fame this weekend or next weekend. Yeah. Bartolo Colon is still pitching. <laughs> also, yes. is Bartolo Colon the last expo? Most likely. Yeah. Yeah. Like there might be another team in Montreal while Bartolo is still pitching in the major leagues. And that would be a great place. Could you imagine? Yes, I know where yes. you're going. Expansion draft. Or total to- Cologne gets picked up totally. by the next Montreal franchise. Yes. Starts their inaugural game. Yes, and I know we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, but I am I am more in I'm increasingly uh, resigned slash okay with the idea of expansion and radical realignment, and it's like just bring it on the DH. I don't care anymore. Like it can't get any worse. <laughs> well, I have slowly come around to the idea of the DH mm-hmm. everywhere. Like, <laughs> it, when the position of pitcher was created, mm-hmm. it was not a specialized position. It was just another defensive position. And over the last 150 years, the role of the pitcher has evolved to where it's specialized. It's for the same reason that in the NFL, your kicker isn't also a linebacker. Right. Like, you don't you have know, the skills to bat. They're ta- you know, they're talking about a bunch of role changes, and, and the one that I've heard them bring up, and, and it's always been really, really vague, like they've never talked about how they would do this, 
but they're they're kicking around some sort of concept on on uh, restricting defensive shifts. See, I'm all for that, and I think that's a great idea. I think give your team. I hate these damn. Do it on mound visits. You get six a game. I would actually go the other way, or or I would go a different way. I would maybe institute some rule that says like the second baseman has to can't go past the bag. The shortstop can't go past the bag. In At the least not prior pass. to the pitch being thrown. Yeah, yeah. But you can't position a, pl- a fielder on the other side of the bag that they are meant Look to be. like football where you yeah. have special, you have certain places where you're not eligible to line up somewhere else. We're going to bring offsides to baseball. Oh my God, I love this idea. I love this idea. Can you imagine like a hit being called back? Yes. Or something being called back because of an offsides. Just like I mean, having just gone through watching the World Cup and I still don't understand offsides in soccer, it's been explained to me like 37 times and it just still doesn't make any sense to me. I am all for let's bring a very simple, basic offsides to baseball. Is your second baseman too far over the bag? Offsides. You, you know, automatic ball, uh, automatic ball given to the batter. Oh. But we get into a situation where you can decline penalties. All right. So umpires, <laughs> in addition to having the bag, like the home plate umpire has got the bag with the balls and mm-hmm. stuff, and he's got all the things he needs, but also penalty flags. Yep. <laughs> penalty flags. I love it. Which, you know, we could use them for box. We could use them for traps, like in the outfield. Like, did they catch it or not? Throw the flag. Like, no. Um... Yeah, these are some ideas. I could get behind this. I am, I am I'm liking this. Because then, for those of you who are NFL fans, we get Ed Hockley, who, Jay, if you don't know who Ed Hockley is. I do is. not. Ed Hockley is the NFL referee, and I'm making muscles here as you do this, <laughs> who is known for also selling tickets to the gun show. Oh. Look up Ed Hockley. Okay. He is a particularly buff NFL referee. I am. I've never really been an NFL fan, but the one thing I always appreciated about the NFL is that when the refs made a ruling, they announced it to the crowd. There was a you know public communication aspect to it. Which like I people believe. are like, "What's going on? What's going on?" Oh, the refs going to tell us. Get on the mic. You'll get on the mic, ref. Drop some knowledge. And in baseball, like, on, it's one thing on TV where you can hear them say, "This is what's going on." But we've all experienced the baseball, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, we're at the game. Mm-hmm. There's a huddle of, of the umpires. One of them makes a hand signal. Yeah. And then you sort of have to figure out amongst yourselves <laughs> based on context and where the players are right. afterward and who's mad mm-hmm. and the score, what happens? It's a multi-part Process. And, you know, I think thinking about it more, I think one of the best things about instituting offsides in baseball would be to listen to Keith Hernandez complain about it. Yeah. That would be awesome. I, I'm all for this. <laughs> offsides. All right. Let's make it offsides happen. Offsides in baseball. Okay. So, I want to reminisce a little bit. Okay. Um, as we discussed earlier, the Mets were playing the Yankees. And whenever the Mets and the Yankees play, I think back to the days when the idea of the Mets and Yankees playing a regular season game was super exciting. Yes. We've, I, know, I know for a fact I've talked about this before, but that first Mets-Yankees series... What year was that? 96 or 97? I don't remember. 97. I remember my excitement level 
um, leading up to that series being so great. You know, the interesting thing about it being 97 is 1996. 1996 was the last time as Mets fans that it felt almost permissible to root for the Yankees. Oh, completely agree. Because they had been bad for a long time. Steinbrenner had been suspended, Mm -hmm. so he was not in the picture. And 96 was the year they went to the World Series with, and it was just the start of Jeter and those years. And they were still the scrappy upstarts. Mm -hmm. And the Mets were terrible. And they weren't competing with each other. Right. I will say, to take it even further, in 1995, the Yankees won the wild card. Mm -hmm. Um, The American League wild card back when there was only one of them. And I ended up going to game two Mm. of that series against uh, the Seattle Mariners. And that was a game at Yankee Stadium that went, I want to say, 14 innings, Mm -hmm. was one, if I remember correctly, was one with a Jim Lairitz home run. That sounds right. Um, Mariano Rivera came in mm-hmm. and threw, I want to say, three innings of relief. That's when he was still the setup guy for John still the Wetland, setup guy for right? John Wetland. Yeah. Derek Jeter was mm-hmm. 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Don Mattingly's last game at Yankee Stadium. Mm. Um, that is, to this day... The most exciting major league game I've ever been to. Wow. And I hate to say that the best yeah. game I've ever been to was a game at Yankee Stadium. But I still sort of had that mm. feeling um, going into the 96 year. Well, I mean, much like we were just talking about, is it permissible for us to, to you know, support the Dodgers as a, as a kind of backup team when our team isn't doing well? And it gets down to these little tiny things like, oh, that's okay. That's not okay. In 96... All the things had kind of lined up where the Mets were not going anywhere. The Yankees were young and fun and doing well. It's like, okay, fine. Like, you know, we can support them because we can support our friends who are Yankee fans. Right. And, it, and it wasn't violating anything. Right. And then the next year, with the start of interleague play, that was not possible anymore. Yes, we were now enemies. Yes, we were once more. We were enemies, and if memory serves, wasn't '97 also the year that Steinbrenner was reinstated, or was that later? I think that he was actually already back in '90s in '96. Really, the, the the issue was that the team that was out there in '95 and '96 he didn't have any hand no, in building. Right, that yes. was all G. Michael. Yeah. Um. So, the '96 team, same thing. Mm-hmm. Um. You still felt like it was. Um, a team that was um, homegrown. Yeah. Remember, there was the weirdness of Buck Showalter getting fired yes. after 95, and then Joe Torre coming in, and I infamously said to a friend of mine that I wouldn't let Joe Torre manage a roadside fruit stand. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, clearly yeah. I was wrong yeah. on this on this one. Yeah. Uh, but I remember, like, being like, oh, it's a joke that the Yankees have hired Joe Torre as their manager. Um, but yeah, I found myself rooting for that 96 team. And the, I mean, the other thing is that they were in the World Series against the Atlanta Braves. That's it. If they were in the and that was a big factor, too, is that, you know, please beat these damn Braves. Um, I think it was next to impossible yeah. to be in New York and be a sports fan 
and not root for the Yankees to win that year. In 96. Yeah. Then 97 rolls around, interleague play, Steinbrenner starts to re- reassert himself. Yes. And, I mean, probably also Yankee fans having won a world championship for the first time in a long time reverted to their insufferable selves. Became incredibly entitled overnight. Yes. I remember in the 98 season. Um, oh God, that was the worst. Uh, last night during the Mets broadcast, it was pointed out, I think Josh may have pointed out, that the 98 Yankees at the All-Star break were 62-20. and 20. Oh, my God. Um, and I remember in late August, the Yankees lose two games in a row. And a friend of mine, uh, my friend Nate, who was a, probably still is the biggest Yankee fan I've ever known, says, what is wrong with the Yankees? And I was like... Dude, you are. It's August. You are sixty games over five hundred. Just shut up. Back off. Yeah. But going back to ninety-seven, mm-hmm. my excitement when the Mets and Yankees were playing a regular season game, I planned my whole weekend around. <laughs> like I made sure that I was out of work in mm-hmm. time to go to the. It's a very Long Island thing to go to the beer distributor mm-hmm. because you remember the way alcohol is licensed in New York. Mm-hmm. If you wanted good beer. There were specific places that you could buy that. <laughs> um, had to go to the beer place to buy some high-quality beer to sit alone in my studio apartment and watch the Mets and Yankees on WPIX. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just be in awe of the fact that the Mets and Yankees were playing a game that counted. And it was going to, like... The fact that the Mets won that first game mm-hmm. basically made the rest of the summer for me. Yeah, pretty like, much. If you know, just Dave Malicki out there with a six nothing complete game shutout. So in 1997, I was living in Manhattan, and I was working um, uh, for those couple of years. I worked as a temp in a series of different Wall Street investment banks. Um, and it's it's not a very well-known uh, fact, and I don't know if they still do this or not, but um, at the time, uh, every investment bank would have uh, a whole team of uh, people, usually people in their 20s, who were... Um, writers or actors or musicians or people who were just just looking for a subsistence job while they pursued other things would work at these banks and they would prepare all the documents they would prepare the 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 contracts the proposals that you know bankers would like write things down like handwritten or they would do like put notes on things and they would bring it to the document processing center and it would go to like one of these keyboard monkeys and they would just make all the changes and write everything up. And so that's what I did for several years as a as a way to support myself. Um, when this uh, series was happening, when this first Subway series was happening, I was working for Deutsche Bank um, mm-hmm. doing this. Uh, uh, Deutsche Bank, which now everyone knows as, you know, one of the only places that would continue to give billions of dollars to Donald Trump. Um, great. Good yeah, times. They, they employed you. So they they employed me. That. Um, the Deutsche Bank building was across the street from the World Trade Center, from the Twin Towers. Um, and during this first game of the Subway Series, I was at work. 
and I was listening to the game on my headphones. Um, it was very much an environment where you have a bunch of people in a room all sitting at workstations, all with headphones on listening to music or, or whatever, like in their own worlds, just cranking out the job in front of them. So I was listening to uh, this game and I remember that at some point um, I got a, a dinner break and I went down onto the street and there used to be a pizza place on the corner of, I forget the name of the actual, I, I don't know, remember if it's uh, uh, Vesey Street or whatever the street was that was to the south of where the Twin Towers were. Right. There was a pizza place on the corner and I went and I got a couple of slices and I watched the end of that game on the TVs and like everyone is standing around and it's like a classic like New York scene from a movie where like everyone's kind of crowded around a corner pizza pizza joint that has a couple of TVs mounted watching the game. Yeah, it's a, watching Dave Malicki mow down Yankees. It's a thing that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, because. You know, we all have the games with us at all times. Yeah. And I love that access, mm-hmm. but that community viewing doesn't, does, just doesn't exist as frequently as it used to. Yeah. You know, you really have to work hard at it. Um, you know, it certainly exists. Um, you know, there are, are some people here in L.A. Uh, I've talked about them before, and you've met a number of them who work hard to bring Mets fans in particular together to watch games. Well, we haven't had a ton to cheer for this mm-hmm. year, yeah. and I haven't been able to get out there and join them. It's definitely still out there. But I'm thinking about that game, and it really ran me down a rabbit hole of thinking about those mid to late 90s Mets. Mm-hmm. Those sort of post-94 strike up through like the 98 Mets. Um Looking at that point in Mets history where they weren't the worst team in the league, they weren't particularly good either. I remember, and we had looked this up before we started recording mm-hmm. this, Like I remember the Mets finished in second place in 1998. And I remember feeling um, like the Mets were competitive in 1998. Looking at the standings, the Mets finished 18 games behind the Braves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the mid-90s were, you know, those Braves teams that you just could not beat those pitchers. Partially because they were great. Partially because they just got every damn call. Like, I remember watching Greg Maddox throw pitches that were three inches outside and getting called strikes. Again and again. It was like, do you have, like like incriminating photos of the umpires like what's going on here where is you know who do you got a p-tape on yeah yeah and i always like to to think about how what year was it that they realigned the divisions i don't remember was Um, that 99 no they realigned the divisions before that before that the divisions were realigned starting with the 93 season because remember maybe the 94 season because remember was the, the the 93 San Francisco Giants who won 103 games and didn't make the postseason? Well, I just remember thinking that there were years where if the Braves had not been in the Mets uh, division and there would have been a wild card, the Mets would have been in the playoffs year after year after year, Mm -hmm. but they weren't. Yeah, I want to say that the alignment and wild card was 94. Um, Siri, when did they (laughs) realign the divisions? Siri's not talking to me right now. We'll have to look it up. 
Um, but as I'm thinking about those 90s teens, it brought me back to a very specific place in my life, and it's very clear to me why those teams mean so much to me. And in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. I turned 21 years old in 1995. Mm -hmm. So the 1995 through 1998 Mets, I am 21 to 24 years old. And I am young and dumb and just like I'm making maybe 200 bucks a week mm -hmm. at my job. I'm living in a one-room studio apartment. I've already, I'm already, at that point, I'm not in school anymore. Mm -hmm. So my only responsibilities are go to work, watch the Mets, go to concerts. <laughs> that was my life. That was yeah. my entire life mm -hmm. for like a four-year period. And that was amazing. And that was the last time in my life where I had so little to worry about. Mm -hmm. And I could really spend my time worrying about the Mets. Yeah. I could spend my time worrying about something you mentioned specifically, sort of alluded to. I could worry about Pete Harnish quitting <laughs> chewing tobacco. I yeah. can worry about Pete Harnish dealing with what, at the time, we didn't realize could have been depression. Well, if I, I, my memory of it is that, that that was actually the crux of it, was that Pete Harnish suddenly couldn't pitch and he wasn't quote unquote feeling well and then the news story came out that he started taking Prozac yes and Bobby Valentine made some sort of comment in the press about you know Pete Harnish being weak yep. or emotional or just you know in some some you know he man troglodyte ball player uh, uh, attitude quote unquote womanish yeah yeah same brush that, like, Bill Pulsifer was painted yep. with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember, like, being deeply invested in that story. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a hallmark of how we have changed over the years in that I didn't immediately jump to Pete Harnish's defense yeah. as a fan. Yeah. Um, I didn't immediately... Like, I remember there was a point where, where Bill Pulsifer injured himself... Um, off the field mm -hmm. and you know it being clearly a case of a young man going through a difficult time and 20 years ago I this is a failing that we all that I had as a person which was 20 years ago I was incapable of seeing these players as the human beings I see them for today I think that's one of the reasons why we got so invested in the whole Wil Wilmer Flores thing in 2015 yes. is that it wasn't just about Wilmer. It was about us. It was yeah. about us recognizing that we had changed and that we could invest in this, that we could see this. And maybe it's just because we're older and we're 20 years older than Wilmer Flores, 30 years older than, I don't know. I can't do math on the fly anymore, but um, you know, obviously this is a kid who cares and how can you get mad at that and we used to not see that we used yeah. to not see these people as I think it's you know they talk about in in comedy they talk about the idea of punching up versus punching down right and even though these ball players are so fabulously wealthy and have so much more money than we do I think as we get older it turns into a 
a, a feeling like when you're criticizing a 20 year old for not doing their job, it feels like punching down. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's it. And it's hard for me to be super critical of a guy like Ahmed Rosario, knowing yeah. that he's young enough to be my son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, my beautiful son, Ahmed Rosario. <laughs> And uh, my large adult son, Dominic Smith. And oh, for Dominic. I, it's, it's definitely changed the way mm-hmm. um, I look at the game. And I look at the way I... 20 years ago, as a, as a child myself, mm-hmm. uh, as yeah. a young adult myself, I was 20 years ago, I was the same age as you know, most of the players on the Mets. Yeah. And I looked up to them. Yeah. And I thought that they were super men. And now I'm older. I'm, I have infinitely, I have more weight on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, I am far more honest and open about my own mental health and my own, who I am as a person. And I understand that so are these players. Yeah. And they're living, they're young men living their lives on a public stage where everything they do is dissected and they deserve to get, they deserve to, they deserve my compassion. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them are morons. <laughs> now, yes. Some of them are morons. I don't want to name names because the names don't matter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during the All-Star game, it was made very clear that one of the players, um, one of Milwaukee's pitchers, um, had said some horrible things on Twitter mm-hmm. as a, um, you know, in the not too distant past. There are, yes, there are those dummies out there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, you know, the difference between me as a baseball fan 20 years ago and me as a baseball fan today is um, I'm less concerned about the outcome and more, con- more interested in the process. Mm-hmm. I wish the process the Mets played this year resulted in more wins. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I'm going to keep tuning in this year because I want to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I'm too invested. And I think that's the hardest part about looking at a potential teardown and a rebuild is that you get invested in personalities and then you have to watch them go. And, you know, uh, I can't pretend to have an objective view of whether or not it would be better if the Mets trade Jacob deGrom or not, because I don't want them to like, you know, it's like, I feel like Jacob deGrom is my family member, but also, you know, I think one of the, and one of the things that I enjoy the most about doing this podcast with you, um, is that we, we've given up the idea that like, we're going to backseat GM. Well, this is what they should do. If I was in charge, I do this. It's not our damn job. Our job is to be fans and have emotional reactions. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. who we are as fans. Yeah. Um, I, last night I jokingly made a remark on Twitter before I went to bed, which was, hell is people discuss, discussing baseball on Instagram. Oh, God. Because <laughs> um, there's like a Mets update account. Yeah. And it just pops me up some Mets news. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good to know when there's trade talk going on. But I clicked into the comments. Oh, don't do that. And I read the comments of just your, just the rest of Mets fandom or baseball fandom talking about the relative worth of Jury's Familia Uh and the organization. And I'm like, oh, this is a can of worms. I don't need to open. Yeah. Um, But really, what it comes down to is I'm just going to be here to watch. 
and see what happens. I mean, we're not changing teams. That's not going to happen. Like the Mets could go zero and 162 and Lord knows they've tried at times. Um, and we're never going to give up. So we'll just accept that. There's, I would almost appreciate the perverse, um, like how would they lose every game? Like, because in Mets fashion, they would lose every game three to two. Yeah, pretty much. They wouldn't get blown out. They would lose every game late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Mets. On that note, we should probably wrap this we up. We should probably wrap this up. This has been a weird confessional. <laughs> Let's just talk about our Mets feelings. Mets fans, thank you. Yeah. And if you are going through this too, you're not going through this alone. Thank you for joining us on Flushing Transit Authority. As we say, we will see you at the baseball movies. Thanks for listening. Take care.